Reading from Mark 7, starting at verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged him, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. It's a, a real uh, pleasure to be here. This is my third attempt at uh, joining you guys on a Sunday and preaching um, for uh, Ben and, uh, and Frankie. First time I gave Matisse like three days notice. Um, I think I got COVID, I'm not sure. It was like in January, it was terrible. I felt horrible. The second time it was like Sunday morning at 6 a.m. I thought I could be somehow I don't know, immune to our family few that just ravaged us. And uh, my dear wife, Christine, was talking to Frankie. Anyways, that is, um, it was crazy. I'm just really glad that I made it out this morning. It's like woke up and like opened an eye, looking just in case something was gonna come at me. Um, but here I am. Um, we're in uh, Mark chapter seven. Uh, it's a, it's a, a privilege to preach through the Gospel of Mark to preach through the Bible. So if you have a Bible, uh, join with me as we read, but first let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can gather as your people, people from all sorts of different walks of life, different parts of the city, even different parts of the country, maybe of the world, uh, but we are united under the banner of Christ. And we thank you for this. As we approach your word uh, this morning, we approach a very difficult passage, a passage that is hard, a passage that, uh, if we are honest, makes us uncomfortable. But Lord, we walk towards it, not away, because we want to walk towards you, because we believe that you are the giver of life, and you have what we need. So Lord, let us be people that are under your word, submitted to your word, always, in Christ's name. Amen. 
We're going to look at two scenes, two separate miracles that Jesus does. The first passage, the first scene is what we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at this morning. And like I mentioned in my prayer, it's a difficult one. It's a, it's a very difficult one. It's not just because it's difficult um, in Jesus' day, and certainly it was difficult in Jesus' day, but it was, it's, it's very difficult in our day. Why? Because Jesus will call a woman a dog. And not just a, 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 any old woman, a pagan woman, a woman that is from an inferior ethnicity as he is. Not actually, but just in Jesus' day. And not only a woman who is from an inferior ethnicity as he is, but a pagan woman. And we'll get to that part a bit later. But let's just uh, let that sink in for a moment. Jesus calls a woman a dog. There is no way to take the edge off of that, looking at you know, ways to, to translate it a different way. Jesus calls a woman a dog. And in a day where equality is the king of virtues, shouldn't a passage like this cause us great concern? Is Jesus put on trial? Is he at risk of being canceled? Jesus calls a woman a dog. The Bible has very hard passages. And uh, like I prayed, uh, there's a great temptation to walk away from them. But uh, our church, and I'm most positive Resurrection Church, um, we have a commitment to walk towards the difficult passages. Uh, that's why we primarily preach through the Bible chapter by chapter, um, whole books of the Bible, because we believe that it's not a good thing to cherry pick uh, from the biblical story. And this would be one that, if I'm honest, I'd probably cherry pick uh, around. I wouldn't pick this one. But we're going to walk towards it this morning. So our text today will show us, um, just in case there's any uh, fear that Jesus is, isn't in fact a racist, he isn't in fact a misogynist, he is not some sort of uh, um, religious colonialist or whatever other bad titles we could give him in our day. But our text today in fact will show us that Jesus um, is going to express the grace of God, give the grace of God in a greater and deeper and fuller way than we could ever hope for, we could ever understand, but it is exactly what we need. So uh, a bit of a background, um, Mark chapter 7 leading into this. Very helpful bit of background information. Previously, Jesus gets into a skirmish, and I say previously, uh, previously in chapter 7, gets into a skirmish with the religi religious elites. They seem to be on a bit of a fact-finding mission, but really they're just trying to get dirt on Jesus to entrap him, to take Jesus to the authorities with evidence and say, listen, we have him, he needs to be hung. So Jesus gets into the, a skirmish with the religious elites in the Galilee. They are, uh, like I mentioned, trying to entrap him, and we see that this has been going on since Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, it says that the religious elites, also with political elites, they gathered together, they held counsel to figure out a way to entrap Jesus to kill him. Jesus makes his way uh, from this skirmish, from this debate, uh, as it were, to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So if Jesus is kind of in the north of Israel, he is making his way to what is modern-day Lebanon. 
And this isn't just an afternoon stroll, it is a serious trip. Um, it would have taken uh, potentially weeks. It's some 120 miles, um, this, this trip that Jesus makes. And he's looking for, we're not sure, it doesn't really say it in, in um, it doesn't really say it in the text, but could it be for reprieve? Could it be that Jesus himself in his full humanity is tired, is weary? A bit about this region, and I'm really glad uh, the first reading was, um, was it First Kings? I think the First Kings reading. So about this region, uh, in the times of Elijah the prophet, this was Phoenicia, and uh, it was the home of Jezebel. Jezebel uh, was, uh, if you're unfamiliar with her, the wife of King Ahab, and as we heard in the first reading, Ahab was a wicked king. He was a terrible king. It says that uh, he was more wicked than the kings that came before him. He was not a good king at all. Uh, so Ahab married Jezebel. Jezebel came from this uh, region, and she came to represent the wandering of Israel into idolatry. So it's not just that Jezebel was a bad character in a bad era of Israel's history. She came to represent the very thing that plagued Israel time and time and time again. She influenced the king to abandon God and worship the Canaanite god Baal. So by the time of Jesus' day, <clears throat> excuse me, the area represented paganism. It, it represented all the ills, in a sense, that, was, uh, that, that Israel and the religious elites would uh, avoid. The region uh, were home to a mixed people of Greek and, uh, and Syrian ethnicity. Uh, hence, they're called Syrophoenicians. And finally, it's not a biblical tradition, but it would have been alive and well in Jesus' day. There was a messianic tradition that claimed the Messiah was to expel and subdue all the, all the pagans. So hold on a second. Jesus is visiting this region that represents everything that has gone wrong in the kingdom of Israel. He is fraternizing, so to speak, with uh, a woman that he ought not to be connected with in any sort of way. His people look down at their people. And, uh, and he claimed to be the Messiah, or at least his followers claimed that he was. And wasn't this Messiah supposed to not talk and connect and, and uh, in a sense, help the enemies of God? Wasn't the Messiah supposed to just destroy them, crush them, pulverize them? So Jesus here, he visits um, a place he ought not to visit as the Messiah. Bad PR move, really bad PR move for Jesus. But here we have it, he's there. So uh, with that as a bit of a background, let's jump into our text, just verses 25 and 26 of uh, chapter seven. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Mark, and I'm sure you've seen this as uh, the weeks have gone by, Mark, he makes these connections from one chapter to another or from one section to another section, and there are subtle ways he does it. And he does it in a way that kind of jogs our memory back to a previous scene, and what we do then is uh, we, we kind of juxtapose two different scenes, and this is one of those scenes. So, we have the Syrophoenician woman 
falling down at Jesus' feet and begging him for a miracle for somebody else, for her, for her daughter. Back in Mark chapter 5, we have a very similar scene with Jairus. Jairus was a leader in the synagogue. And uh, see if you can see some of the connection points between chapter 7 and chapter 5. So Mark chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, Jesus, Jairus fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. It's an interesting, it's very, very similar um, scenes. Jairus begging Jesus for the health and well-being of his daughter, this Syrophoenician woman at the feet of Jesus, begging Jesus to do a miracle for her daughter. So why is this important for us to see? In one scenario, we see Jairus, this well-to-do in society. And on the other hand, we see the Syrophoenician woman who, again, by all accounts, Jesus should not be connected with her at all. She's like at the bottom rung, so to speak. She's not even in Jesus' society, but socially, right down here from the perspective of Jesus' people. So what will Jesus do? Because with Jairus, with Jairus, he heals. In fact, he agrees that he'd go with Jairus to see the daughter. He gets interrupted. He performs an incredible miracle. By the time that he's back on his way, forget about it, the, the, the daughter's dead. Jesus, he said, no, 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 no. She's healed, go. So Jesus performs a miracle. So will Jesus do the same thing here? The answer is no. So we have these two extremely similar texts. In one case, Jesus does a, a, a miracle, and in this case, he doesn't. Is Jesus inconsistent here? Because if he is, that raises a big problem for us. Because we can call into question Jesus' um, uh, his, his consistency that he, is, that he is not, in fact, the unchanging God. And all of a sudden, the foundation of our belief in Jesus starts to crumble, potentially. Here's the offensive statement from Jesus, verse 27. And Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bet bread and throw it to the dogs. And Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. There's just not a good way to translate that. There's just not a good way. At best, translation-wise, is to say that Jesus wasn't really calling her this mangy street dog that's all kind of gross and disgusting, that eats garbage. No, Jesus was referring to her as like a nice, groomed house pet. I don't know. I, I don't think that's a very convincing way to kind of get around the hard bits of the text. Jesus calls this woman a dog. And I don't know if I could be convinced um, a, a, to, to read it in a, in a way that, that isn't offensive. So here you see, um, you know, Jesus says something remarkably offensive, um, not just to uh, our ears, but it would have been offensive to, to the Syrophoenician woman as well, or it should have been at least. But was Jesus being racist or a misogynist? Was he being 
a terrible person with this statement. Was Jesus, is Jesus everything our society has come to despise? I think it's no, and not just because I'm a, a minister, but, uh, but I think what Jesus was trying to do was provoke her to faith. There's this remarkable scene in the King's speech where um, the king, um, uh, played by uh, Colin Firth, King George VI, is on the verge of having to address the nation. It's wartime, and they're in um, the throne room, so to speak, and everything is falling apart. And his speech therapist, Lionel, who's played by Jeffrey Rush, he is trying to, in a sense, say, listen, what we've done is fantastic, and I'm not, you know, a fraud, because he was being accused um, by the king and the king's handlers as a fraud. So the king turns around, and you kind of just see the king's face, and he's talking about how his destiny is to be King George the Stammerer. And when he turns around, he sees Lionel sitting in the king's throne, uh, on, on his throne, on his chair. And he says, get off, what are you doing? That is not, you're not supposed to be sitting in this. He goes, who cares, whatever. And he's like, no, 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 that is, that is the chair of, of St. Edward. And he goes, I don't care, what, why do I have to listen to you? He goes, by divine right. He goes, you don't even want to be the king, you've already said so. And then he keeps going back and forth about why he should listen to the king. And then finally the king says, he yells, he goes, because I have a voice. And then Lionel is quiet and he says, yes, you do. And it's like a big moment. I'm getting goosebumps. Are you getting goosebumps? I'm getting goosebumps. I love these movies. Anyways, it's a huge, huge, huge scene. It's a turning point in the scene, but Lionel wasn't trying to poke at the king. He was trying to provoke him. And I think this is what Jesus is doing here. He is trying to provoke this woman, in a sense, to, to trust in him, to submit to him, to have faith in him. Uh, I come from um, an Anglican church, um, and uh, our statement of faith, so to speak, the 39 Articles of Religion, says this in Article 20 that, um, among other things that it says in that article, is that we are not to expound one passage of Scripture so that it contradicts another passage. It's a very simple biblical hermeneutic. We have to be careful how we read the Bible. So hold on a second. This kind of backs up what I'm trying to say, what Jesus is doing, that Jesus isn't a racist, a misogynist. He's trying to provoke this woman to faith. Because if we uh, remember um, a bit later on, um, or sorry, just in the, the previous scene rather, when Jesus is going head to head with the religious elites, the issue that they're debating about is uh, food that defiles somebody. So listen, the, the religious elites say, like, listen, your people are eating food that defiles you. And Jesus is saying, no, not a bit. It's not what goes into somebody that makes them unclean. It's what comes out of somebody that defiles them. It's a very interesting passage that is uh, situated, Mark situates it, right before this scene that we see here. And the idea of Jesus talking about defiled foods or not defiled foods is a way of simply saying that it's not, um, people are not uh, to be considered less than for things that are completely out of their control. 
It's not about uh, their ethnicity, uh, where they were born, whether they are a man or a woman. The defilement comes from a defiled heart. Jesus is making this extremely clear. It is what comes from a defiled heart, a heart that is self-sufficient and proud. We're going through a sermon series on the Psalms. We did Psalm 1 last week. This is what Psalm 1 would call uh, wicked, sinners, scoffers. That's what defiles somebody, what comes out of their heart. Jesus is making that point right before he calls this woman unclean, in a sense, calling her a dog. So either Jesus is completely inconsistent, which, you know, it's something that we ought to wrestle with, but either he's completely inconsistent, on one hand saying, it actually doesn't matter your ethnicity, it doesn't matter the things that you can't control, those are the things that don't defile you, but it's your a defiled heart that makes one unclean. But then on this flip side, he's calling a woman a dog based on what? Her ethnicity? Her gender? Throughout all of the Old Testament as well, we see prophecies whereby God's plan of redemption is not just for one group of people, but it's for all people. So again, if we look at Article 20, that simple hermeneutic to not... Um, interpret one part of scripture against the other parts of scripture, how then ought to we, uh, how then should we then read, sorry, Mark chapter 7, this interaction with the Syrophoenician woman? He does call her a dog. It is a slight on her being a Gentile and a woman and a pagan. But Jesus here is not calling her a dog because he's a racist or a misogynist or some kind of religious imperialist, but because he wants a response. He is provoking her. Look with me, verse 28 to 30, at the response of this dear woman. But the Syrophoenician, the Syrophoenician woman answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, Jesus said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This woman doesn't try to self-justify herself or call out Jesus for his offensive words. She instead recognizes her great need for Christ above all things, above even justifying herself. Notice too that Jesus doesn't double down as soon as she makes this, uh, has this response. And he said, listen, I said to you, you're dirty. Get out of here, scram, I don't wanna to talk to you. Don't you see I'm on a nice vacation? He doesn't say any of that. She responds in the way that he was trying to provoke her to respond, and she responds in kind. This woman submits her very dire situation to Christ by proclaiming her great need for him and recognizes his great ability for her. This story in the previous one, and I say the, the, the previous one um, of, uh, of Jairus, Mark chapter 5, they're juxtaposed in such a way as to make evidently clear that all the external factors in one's life are of no worth where salvation is concerned. That is, for Jairus, he didn't come to, to Jesus and say, listen, I am religious brass. I run the show at the synagogue. I am righteous. I keep the commandments. I'm excellent. What does he do? He throws himself at the feet of Jesus. Nothing in Jairus' life is gonna get in the way 
of his connection to Jesus. And the Syrophoenician woman, what does she do? She throws herself at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus, in a sense, with the animosity between these two people groups, pokes and prods her in such a way as to elicit a response for her to just do away with all of the baggage of the past and throw herself at Christ. And she does that. Because in the end, Jesus is consistent. He is connecting with these people. Uh, uh, he's trying to accomplish the same thing in, in either of these people, but by different ways. I think this is a, a good thing for us. This is good news because it, it is not on one hand that we come into the church and we lose our identity. We have to dress a certain way, talk a certain way, behave more or less a certain way or else. But rather, God knows the details of who we are way more than we could ever understand. The unsubmitted parts of our lives, the sin that we're not trying to talk about, the past that we want to keep buried. And he will address it in ways that are very particular to us to elicit a response for us, not for shame, but rather so that we may throw ourselves at him. And what is the result? Wholeness, healing, salvation. It's a beautiful thing, this, this passage. It really, truly is a beautiful thing. You know, equality, um, it is a fantastic virtue and an important virtue that, uh, that has animated uh, abolition movements over the centuries. It's a good thing. But we have a type of equality in our culture that is a, it's like a bit of a pseudo-equality. Because the equality is not rooted in the fact that human beings, by virtue of being human, have intrinsic value because we are made in the image of God. We are image bearers of God. Rather, equality uh, in treating people uh, with, with care and respect, it's contingent on the things we subscribe to, how we affirm or don't affirm, what we eat, how we spend money on, the people we enjoy spending time with, the movies we see, the boycotts that we participate in. I mean, you kind of name it. As soon as you are out of a specific group, you're not treated with equality and respect or dignity. I mean, potentially, at best, you're marginalized. At worst, I mean, your name is dragged through the mud. The biblical view, if you compare it, that with a biblical understanding of, of, uh, of a biblical equality, a biblical worth, it is not tied in things that are fleeting, things that change, styles, moments, but rather it's tied to the eternal, transcendent, and unchanging God. That means human beings, by virtue of being human, have worth, intrinsic worth, are image bearers of God. That's a good thing, because God doesn't change. That means our worth will not change. And yet, don't we struggle with feelings of being worthless or less than or subhuman? And I think a big part of this has to do with, although we are image bearers of God, we are bent image bearers. We are broken or marred image bearers of God because of sin, because of rebellion, because of brokenness. And I think this is what the Syrophoenician woman recognizes here. She recognizes who she is, and she is, in a sense, a dog, but not because she's a Syrophoenician or a woman or a pagan. 
but because she is not yet a child of God. If you look with me back at the text, what is Jesus' response? Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That she is not yet part of this covenant community, that she is not yet welcomed into the family of God. Yes, she's made in the image of God, not because of, um, but because of sin, rather, because she has yet to be restored to the, by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, she is bent and marred, she's still broken. And the reality is, if we are honest with ourselves, we are all Syrophoenician women. Why? Because we are not in the family of God, or at one point we weren't. We were estranged from God. We were orphans. We were rebels. We were, we were outside of his family. We were following paths that lead to further brokenness and pain. All marred, bent, broken images of God. Not yet worthy to be God's children, but desperately in need of being God's children. Jesus isn't championing, championing some kind of Jewish supremacy, and if you go back and mark, you see that there is a bit of a tension between insider and outsider groups in the text. But Jesus isn't somehow championing this uh, Jewish supremacy to the poor woman, but he, again, is provoking her to faith. And what faith does she have? What is interesting here is that throughout Mark's gospel account, Jesus, he has not yet met somebody, um, not even his disciples, who hear his parables and understand them right away, until now. And it's not his disciples, it's not the religious elite, it's a Syro-Phoenician woman who is the first to understand the parables and, and, and respond in faith to the parables of Christ. It's remarkable how Mark, by way of the Holy Spirit, just takes conventional ideas of religion and what it means to be self-justified and he turns it on his head. She is not the, she's the last person that should be, in a sense, the, um, the, the one who responds properly. It should be his disciples, it should be the religious elites. No, it's a Syrophoenician woman, a pagan. Jesus has put out the bait and she has taken it. She has pushed herself towards him. Friends, will we do likewise? Will we see the provocations of, of, of the Holy Spirit in our lives pushing us to put to death the things we trust in more than God so that we will trust in him? Will we respond in the same way of the Syrophoenician? The same gospel that was offered to the people of Israel, offered to the Syrophoenician, is offered to us. There's a, there's a great danger, I'll just say this, it's not in my notes, but there's a great danger to self-justify or to push away the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But friends, if you feel in your heart, if you feel by, by, by virtue of God's word, cut to the heart, like Frankie talked about earlier, that you need to confess your sins to Almighty God, to submit to Him, do it. Don't wait till tomorrow. There's going to be enough junk that's going to come up tomorrow, you'll get distracted, you'll forget. Today is the day. So in light of all of this, how then shall we live? And this will connect us to that last story, and I'll wrap things up um, briefly with that second story in, in Mark chapter 7 of the deaf man. So after we become children of, of God, our calling in life becomes the very same calling as Christ. 
We don't get a new ministry. We get to part participate in Christ's ministry. We get to be his hands and his feet. We get to be his mouthpiece, declaring the gospel to those around us that do not yet know. 9,000 children will be born in, in Ottawa this year and next year and so on. A lot of people to, to share uh, the, the good news of Jesus Christ to. So we have this very ministry of Christ that he invites us into. And here's an interesting bit. Jesus returns, verse 31, from Tyre and Sidon back to the Sea of Galilee to the re region of the Decapolis. Uh, the last time we saw the Decapolis was a very interesting story. Jesus is sailing across the sea. There's a huge storm. His disciples think that they're going to die. Jesus wakes up with one word. He calms the storm. They go to the Decapolis and they encounter the Gerizim demoniac, this plagued, lonely, broken, violent man um, at the Decapolis. And Jesus heals him and the people come out and the people say, we don't want you to come here. Don't, don't darken the shores, our shores with your shadow. They're afraid of him. And Jesus gets in the boat and he goes away. But before he gets in the boat and goes away, this former demoniac, now this healed man, comes to Jesus and says, let me get in the boat with you, please. Let me be your disciple. Let me be a part of your entourage. I want to be with you. And Jesus, what does he say? He says this, no, stay in your town Go to your family, tell all of what God has done for you. And now we return to the Decapolis and take a look. Verses 31 and following. I'll start in verse 32. And they brought, this is um, like a big crowd, and they brought to Jesus a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. They begged him to lay his hands on him. I'll just pause real quickly. The region that did not want Jesus now is begging him to come and to touch the broken and the deaf and the hurt. And all of a sudden we see that when a life is truly connected to Christ, is healed, this Gerizim demoniac is connected to Christ, the ministry that is given to that person is to share the good news. And boy, did he share it. Likely the first Christian evangelist that we see and the Decapolis all of a sudden, there's a buzz about Jesus. It's a beautiful, beautiful story, and it's instructive for us. We're not going to get into the healing itself, um, all that, uh, but just to say that Jesus, what he does is he heals a deaf man, and out of all the words that could be used to describe this healing, Mark uses um, a term that is literally that Jesus let his tongue out of prison, that, that this man had a, a captive tongue, and he loosed it. It's like the chains came off his tongue. It's interesting imagery here. And it all points back to Isaiah chapter 35. And I'm not going to read the full chapter. I'll just kind of take a, a couple verses out of Isaiah 35. But before I say that, it's just to say this. Um, leading up to Isaiah 35, there's judgment on the nations. Isaiah is hammering the nations. A couple of those nations would be Tyre and Sidon. And then by the time we get to chapter 35 of Isaiah this is what it says. It's talking about the good news of the coming Messiah and what will happen. Verse 2, it says, The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. In verses 5 and 6, 
Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And it goes on in verse 10 to say, and the ransomed, the prisoner, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return, uh, those that the Lord saves, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and, uh, and sighing shall flee away. This is all to say that what we are seeing here is the fulfillment of God's word and the beginning of the end. That these promises made centuries before, these, these prophecies made centuries before are coming to fruition in the pages of Mark chapter 7. And this call then to see the kingdom of God come is now our call by God's strength, but it is our call. And it is a beautiful life, not a, an easy life, but a beautiful one. Because like the Gerizim demoniac, we have been freed from so much. Like the, the Syrophoenician woman, our, our future is bright because salvation has visited our home. Like the mute man, his tongue is released so that he can sing praises evermore. This is the wonderful beauty of the gospel of Christ. And this is our beautiful destiny in Jesus. So friends, let us come to Christ like the Syrophoenician woman. Let us be made children of God through Jesus. And then let us be his servants proclaiming the good news of God to Westboro, to Canada, to Ottawa, to the ends of the world. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word and uh, how it, by your Holy Spirit, finds ways to cut to the heart. Different ways for different people. But the end goal is the same, that we would submit, bend a knee, throw our, 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 our very hopes, have our faith put in you. Lord, many of us here are Christian. Maybe there's some that are not. We pray the same prayer for all of us, that we would bend our knee to King Jesus, that we would submit to him, that we would uh, be open to his provoking by his spirit so that we may walk in fullness and wholeness. In Jesus' name. Amen.